Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices, to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. You talked about the market opportunity. Mm. When you look at the, the landscape of the billionaire population today, statistics show that you expect that population to grow by about 34% in the years to come. And from that population, at least a third is going to come from Asia Pacific. And in the next five years time, we expect Asia Pacific to be growing at about 40%. So the, the market is large you know, in relation to the space of wealth to be managed. And we look at the growth of family office space in Singapore has been exponential. So between 2017 to 2019, according to EDB statistics, the family office space grew by five times. And in 2020, at that time, they were looking at around 400 family offices. By the end of 2022, it has um, grown to more than 800. So if you look at today, I think it is actually a very conservative estimate to say that the number of family offices in Singapore has crossed a thousand. You know, you can easily expect it to be much more than that. So I think it's a very exciting area to be in. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and today we are focusing on an intriguing topic, family offices in Asia. Particularly, Singapore has emerged as a prominent destination where high net worth individuals and families, including notable figures such as the investor Ray Dalio or the Google founder Sergey Brin, have established their family offices here. We want to explore the significant trends shaping the family offices industry and delve into the intricacies of setting up a family office in Asia. Joining me today for this insightful discussion is Lee Wong, Head of Family Services Asia at Lombard Odier. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me today. And thank you for taking the time to come on to have this chat about this interesting topic because some of my audience have asked about this, given that a lot of fund managers in the US who actually listen to this show as well. But before we dive into the main subject of the day, I want to also understand how did you ended up in this particular business? Maybe the first question I always like to ask my guests is, how did you start your career? Okay, I'm actually a lawyer by training. I graduated from National University of Singapore Law School in 1995. And my first law firm was Allen and Gladhill. Mm. And uh, so from from there, I moved to Drew and Napier. In Drew and Napier, I was doing corporate banking, corporate advisory, legal work, and I was seconded to Citibank as a young lawyer. So I was in Citibank for about a year and a half before I went back to the law firm. And one day a banker called up and asked me whether I would like to join the bank in the trust and fiduciary services department. 
And um, being a young, curious person, I thought, well, why not? I don't know what this area of work is about, except the fact that I studied equity and trust in school. So I thought, you know, try something new. If I don't like it, I can always go back to the law firm. And that was the beginning of a very, very long career. And as you see, the industry evolved over the time from a wealth planning space. It expanded to many areas of services for the clients. And here we are today. And, and I, I suppose you have actually entered into this industry, which is surprisingly because Singapore is positioning itself as a financial hub. And now with a lot of wealthy individuals from all over the world coming to Singapore to set up their family offices. But before we delve into the topic, maybe I want to just ask you this question. What interesting lessons can you share with my audience about your career journey? As you can see, it wasn't a normal career journey. If you imagine somebody who is in a financial institution covering family offices, you expect the person to come from a finance background, for example. So to me, the lessons that I think are interesting for me in the course of my career are things around, how should I say this? Do not begrudge the lessons that and experiences that life presents itself to you. So for example, when I was a young lawyer, and as a junior, most junior person in the team, you end up doing very boring things like proofreading. And it's very easy for somebody to dismiss this kind of work and say, well, you know, I studied in law school. I'm supposed to be a lawyer. Why am I doing boring things like proofreading? But you realize over time that that's how you learn how to draft. That's how you become very meticulous in the things you do. Today, even when I'm looking at the menu, things pop out at me. So my staff used to tell me, you know, boss, you you spot these things that none of us see. And this doesn't happen by chance. It's because, you know, when you are learning, you just take everything with you. And Steve Jobs says, you know, let life connect its dots, right? So if you just allow lessons to present itself and you just take whatever it comes, I think it puts you in good state over time as you gain more and more experience over life. The other thing, I, as I've mentioned earlier, I was a curious young lawyer. So I've always allowed curiosity to lead me. It served me well. And I've always taken an attitude of why not? So there's a part of me that takes this Star Trek attitude, you know, and just go and venture into new frontiers and do not be afraid to try new things and do not be afraid that you might fail. Because I, I think from those life lessons, you learn to be a multifaceted person. And that in itself puts you in good state. If you look at the family office space today, you need somebody who has legal experience. You need somebody with finance experience. You need somebody who knows how to negotiate. You need somebody who knows how to coordinate. So when you have multifaceted exposure, it puts you in good state when the job requires and demands you to have many different skill sets. And last but not least, just do not be afraid to venture into something and realize this is not really my cup of tea. Any experiences, if it means that this is not my thing, is 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 worthy of, of your venture. Mm. I think these are very, very good, great, great lessons, particularly you talk about the learning from scratch and then subsequently use that experience to compound because you compound all the experience of just reading contracts and then you're able to spot for things that people may not be able to see. So we come to the main subject of the day. Um, basically, I want to talk to you about Lombard ODA Group 
and also the family offices landscape in Asia to start off the conversation. Can you introduce Lombard ODA and Co, an independent Swiss private banking group based in Geneva, as I understand it, was founded in 1796, probably the oldest private banking group in the world. And the role that the company play in assisting high net worth individuals and families in establishing and managing their family offices. And I also understand it, it survived many, many financial crises in the past. Yes, you know us well. You know us well. Yes. Well, you are right on all counts. We are 226 years old this year. So naturally, with that kind of lifespan to date, we have overcome 40 over financial crises, and we also have overcome two world wars. So it is a very interesting, different bank from the ones you usually see. So for me, what is very unique about us is that today we are still privately owned. And we had four founding families, Lomba, Odie, Daria and Henge. And we are in our seventh generation so we are in itself a, a family business that has transited across many generations. So we have the memory of experience. So when, when we work with our clients and they are business owners in their own right and they worry about transitions, this is something that we live and breathe and we truly believe in that transgenerational agenda. So we are how should I say this? As a privately owned organization, as you can expect, we are fairly conservative in relation to the way we use our balance sheet. So our tier one ratio is very high, is about 30%. Most of the banks out there will be in their teens. So you can tell that we are, are solid and we are also very liquid in relation to the way we manage our, our balance sheet. Finch rating AA minus, which is the highest that you can find for a group of our size. And I think for me, we are also a very values-driven organization. Our mission statement is to be the banker of reference for entrepreneurs as well as their family, not just for today, but for generations after generations. So there's a this particular feeling about it, yeah? Because, you mm. know, we, we do believe in that transitional story. And when I talk about values-driven, we believe in sustainability. And a lot of organizations, a lot of financial institutions today talk about sustainability. But for us, we started an impact office in 1997. So at that time, we were already analyzing ESG scoring and developing the methodology for it. But we've been very quiet about it because we wanted to backtest and make sure that we are on the right track. So in 2019, we were the first financial institution and till today, the only one that is a B Corp certified organization. So as you can see, if it's something that we believe in, we truly sink our, our roots into it. And in 2020, we have also entered into a partnership with Oxford University to ensure that we take a science-led approach to ensuring that we can do this well when we support our clients on that front. So as an organization, I think we truly believe that we need to be backed by our value system and to ensure that the things we do reflect it. Mm. Um, many firsts in, in as you can tell, we are a very old organization. There are many firsts in Switzerland. Some of the highlights are that we were one of the founding members of the Geneva Stock Exchange. We also were the sort of contributors for what we know as Red Cross today in 1863. So as an organization, mm. we take on things that we believe in and we support it. Until today, we have a very strong relationship with International Red Cross and we participate in humanitarian activities as well. 
Wow. So they are the customers and also helping the customers to manage wealth across generations or even new entrepreneurs that come into the space. As we're covering a space where very few people will know about unless you're in private banking, can you explain the concept of family offices and their need to address wealth management and inheritance to my audience and maybe talk about the total market opportunity for the family offices landscape for asset management and private banking in Asia, because this is becoming something very interesting in this part of the world. So when we look at a family office, essentially it is just a group of people who's helping a high net worth family to manage and sustain their wealth across generations. So the form of a family office differ from family to family, depending on the objectives of the family office. Of course, in the Singapore context, what is popularly known is essentially a, a company incorporated in Singapore, acting as a family office and fund manager for a fund entity that sort of holds the family wealth. But in truth, when you look at the different types of family offices out there, you have families whereby the family office is embedded in their family businesses. You may have a core few trusted employees within the family business that's helping the family to handle their family wealth affairs. At times, they rely on what we call a virtual family office, meaning that these few trusted family employees engage with external stakeholders and external service providers such as your lawyers, banks, fund institutions to support the, the needs of the family. And then they evolve into what we call a single family office today. And as they get better and better at what they do and they get recognized in the marketplace amongst other families at the kind of good work that they have done, then they at times evolve into a multi-family office where they take on funds of other families as well. So if you look at the Rockefellers, for example, they started as a single family office supporting the needs of the Rockefeller family. And then over the years, they, they get better and better and eventually they manage wealth for many other families, more than 250 families as I know today. So as you can see, it evolves over time and it starts off with recognizing the needs and the asset classes that the families require uh, to be dealt with. And then you, you take whatever form that makes sense for the family. So you talked about the market opportunity. Mm. When you look at the the landscape of the billionaire population today, statistics show that you expect that population to grow by about 34% in the years to come. And from that population, at least a third is going to come from Asia Pacific. And in the next five years time, we expect Asia Pacific to be growing at about 40%. So the, the market is large, you know, in relation to the space of wealth to be managed. And we look at the growth of family office space in Singapore it has been exponential. So between 2017 to 2019, according to EDB statistics, the family office space grew by five times. And in 2020, at that time, they were looking at around 400 family offices. By the end of 2022, it has um, grown to more than 800. So if you look at today, I think it is actually a very conservative estimate to say that the number of family offices in Singapore has crossed 1,000. You know, you can easily expect it to be much more than that. So I think it's a very exciting area to be in. Mm. To some of us out there, how does one start a family office in Asia, given there are different financial hubs? I mean, there are Hong Kong and Singapore. What is the thinking process or mental model before these families engage you as a firm to help them to jumpstart that process itself? 
So I'm going to handle the question in two parts. How do you actually start a family office and the thinking process? For me, it starts off firstly as with a gap analysis. So a lot of times, particularly in in jurisdictions where the knowledge base is a bit weaker, clients hear other people talk about family offices. They hear their friends say that they are setting up a family office. So they have certain perception what it is and they they want to jump into it and not really recognizing what are their real objectives to set up a family office and then you know they end up with something that's not fit for purpose so to me whenever a client walks through the door and they tell me that they want a family office I will ask them to do a gap analysis and that starts with asking themselves why do I think I need a family office and what do I think a family office would do for me so what is keeping me up at night and making me frustrated how does my today actually look like how are my assets being managed today who is doing it and what is not really pleasing to me what am i not satisfied about and then what does tomorrow actually look like so if i have this dream family office how might would my tomorrow actually look like how would my assets be managed differently and what's going to make me feel that I've reached success. What does success actually look like to me? So it is important for them to understand the gap between where I am today and what does tomorrow look like, and then ask themselves then, okay, this is where the gap is. How do I close it? What kind of services then do I need in order for me to be able to close this gap? How do I then provide this service for myself? Am I going to insource it? Am I going to outsource it? How much would it cost me to be able to do it? Does my family members have those skill sets? If I don't have it and I require to bring it in, how much am I prepared to spend? What kind of assets do I deal with? What comprises my family wealth? And then where would my opportunities be? Then I can properly consider where do I place my family office? I think it's important they understand this. So you talked about the Hong Kong and Singapore bit. So understanding where your assets are and what they look like, then you realize where should my gateway be. So if you are looking for a North Asia gateway, then potentially you would place it in Hong Kong. If you need a South Asia gateway, then maybe here. If you have a relocation driver and Singapore is a place that you want to be in, then it could be here. Sometimes you have clients who are looking at multiple jurisdictions. They could say that, well, you know, maybe I'm a North Asia family. I would like to explore business opportunities and expand my footprint into South Asia as well as Europe. So if that be the case, I may be looking at Singapore and maybe Dubai as two different entry points. So when they do the gap analysis, then they realize what exactly is the outcome I'm trying to achieve. Then they are in a better position to sort of deploy and so set their routes appropriately. A lot of times people think about the tax incentive, but truth be told, if you look at the Hong Kong and the Singapore tax incentives, they are slightly different, but they are largely the same. So to me, it's more about your gateway opportunities that you're looking for to help you to decide better where should you place a family office. Mm. And I think the goals of family office, part of it is either settling inheritance, right? But there are also other things that family offices want to do, for example, doing investments or maybe even funding some charities or doing some philanthropic activities. Does it cover all these aspects? 
Well, different family offices will start off doing different things, but when they evolve to a mature state, a lot of them will do all of the above. So if you look at a, a family office today, and a lot of that thinking process is, as you say, an inheritance and a wealth transfer consideration. So you have the next-gen coming upstream. And a lot of times when you look at a next generation, they might be disinterested in the current family business. So uh, your family office then becomes an opportunity platform for them to sort of deploy, to incubate various businesses. Then that gateway to be able to look at new business entry points becomes important. Sometimes it is also serving as a diversifier from your family business. So I have dividend streams. I have cash flow coming out from the family office. I, I'm looking at the world. It is volatile. We're in the fourth industrial revolution. I do not know whether my family business is going to be as prosperous as it is today. So I want to diversify out my asset class. So I want my family office to be managing financial wealth so that I have a sort of disassociate the correlation to my family business, for example. So there are various starting point and driving forces that makes a family want to start out in that process. But eventually, as they get more mature, other objectives and needs will start to come into the picture. So most young family offices will start off with a, a mission from an investment perspective. Later on, other things will come upstream. What are the minimum requirements for high net worth individuals and families before they can even set up a family office with a private bank like Lombard Odia? What was the minimum that I need to be in order to get into the club? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not trying to be funny here. But yeah, again, like I mentioned earlier, Family offices come in different forms, right? And that was a good question because a lot of times in the marketplace, people uh, has this misconception because of the tax incentives schemes that has been thrown around that you need at least this minimum amount of money to set up a family office. So, for example, like the Singapore tax incentive schemes, your 13O has a 20 million threshold, your 13U has a 50 million threshold. If you look at the Hong Kong one that has newly come upstream, is the 240 million Hong Kong dollars threshold. So people get confused by the tax incentive scheme. They think, oh, I, I need this minimum amount to set up a family office. But if, let's say, for example, you have a family that is real estate business, they are developers, and therefore this is an asset class they are very familiar with and very interested in. So in relation to their private wealth, dividend stream coming out and distributed to the family, what do they do? They go around buying hotels, they buy properties and exotic locations. Yeah, because this is something I know how to access. I know how to make money in it, even though I'm not doing it within my family business, which is developing buildings and whatever. I'm still investing my own personal money into castles and hotels and things like that that I, I'm interested in because I know how to make money out of it. So for that kind of a family office, they're managing primarily real estate, illiquid assets. They don't really need the tax incentives because their their funds are not put into the financial industry. They're mm. not into financial assets. So how, how much money do you need? Hard to say. Could they be clients of Lomba ODA? Very much so, because if they still have financial needs, not as much as the amount that they're deploying into the hotels and whatever they buy, but as and when they sell a hotel, they might need to sort of park funds somewhere and do some things, or they may need to hedge their currencies, or they need to diversify outside investments. 
they could have a bank account with us, but it it mm-hmm. it, it is it doesn't comprise all the assets that the family office actually manage. But at the same time, you would have a client who's looking to set up a family office and enjoy the tax incentive schemes, then they will need to meet the requirements of the tax incentive thresholds. Mm. But for us, as long as it is a private banking client that we would like to have, then we are quite happy to have them. <laughs> we don't have any crazy thresholds that we need them to have. And as long as they are clients, we will serve. Because as you've mentioned just now, my team is called Family Services Team. Mm. And we basically, is an advisory team, my team members, we are all lawyers. Because we operate on the soft side of the client equation. So... Mm. Whatever issues that arise in the course of the client's life journey, which could be a wealth planning consideration, which could be a family governance one, which could be a family office advisory one or a philanthropy one, we support them. So if a client of us that has started with us as a small account, grew into a big account, they had a liquidity event, and then now they say, can you help us to set up a family mm. office? We, we will support them. So they don't need to oh. meet a certain threshold before we are happy to take them on. <laughs> Yeah, so quite curious, right? So you have all these high net worth individuals and now mm-hmm. their families are considering setting up this family office in Asia. And I think mm-hmm. relatively, as you said, it has grown. this industry has grown so much in our mm-hmm. part of the world. What key factors do they have to take into consideration? I think you alluded earlier, it's not just about the tax. It's also about what yes. you want to do. For example, investments, it could also be wealth estate planning, it could also be diversification. Mm-hmm. And then what are the considerations that they need to make the next steps in order to establish their family offices in this part of the world then? So, like I said earlier, if once you start off your with your gap analysis, you roughly would have an indication what kind of family office you're looking at, what kind of size you're looking at, and roughly where you want to be. And then that's about the juncture where you speak to people like us to say, okay, I have some thought process now because we've sent them off to do their homework, mm-hmm. right? Then they come back, mm-hmm. okay, these, these are the, my thought process. And then we will advise them to say, okay, if you're looking at all these things, then potentially we should look jurisdictions you should be looking at and how should you be setting it up. So when you look at potentially a client who's thinking about Singapore, for example, then naturally they need to understand what are the requirements to set up a family office here. So Mm. for example, if you are um, setting up a company in Singapore to act as a family office, then most fund managers, you know, anybody that manages funds loosely a fund manager, right? So if you're managing funds in Singapore, then technically speaking, you need a capital market license, then you need to understand the exemption regime because as Mm. a family office that's managing funds for a single family, then you can actually apply for an exemption so that you don't need a capital market license. So that's something that we can guide them that, okay, you know that it's going to be easy to manage your family office here because you don't need a licensing regime. You do not need to meet certain requirements, report to MAS all the time about your activities. So, you know, it's easy to set up. Then they need to consider, well, for my fund entity, as we've mentioned earlier, if my family office is managing funds here, Singapore has a sort of a territorial taxation regime, right? So my management and control being here because my family office is here, does that attract a taxable event for the funds I'm managing? And the Mm. answer is yes. So that's why your tax incentive scheme becomes interesting because it exempts off the Singapore income tax in relation to the funds that you're managing here. 
So how do I meet the threshold? Then they need to understand that, well, my 13O, my 13U has business spend requirement, has number of minimum hires that I need to do. So am I able to meet all these thresholds? Do I want to relocate into Singapore, for example? Is that something important for me? Are there family members who want to come and live in Singapore? Are there people I need to hire? What are the minimum salaries that you need to pay? So these are then the things that we will let them understand that these are the criteria. Can you meet it? How do you meet it? And how do you think roots here? So I, I think those are the, the factors that a client then needs to think about if they're thinking about setting up a family office here in Singapore. Mm. Mm. From your perspective and experience, because I can now understand why uh, someone with a legal background is very suited to be the head of the team actually dealing with family service as such. What are the important elements for establishing a successful family office for example, not just structure alone, but also governance. We talk a lot about the mechanics about how to set up, but we also haven't established like what is the family constitution or the governance in order to structure that correctly. Yes. So when it comes to the governance piece, for me, the first most important element is to get the family ready to have difficult conversations amongst themselves. Because, you know, a dialogue and communication is something that's very important for people to seek alignment. You know, imagine a family office it is managing the funds of the entire village. You know, and you wanted to assist the family to cross multiple generations. So if you are lucky, you would have a young third generation family member who is helping the family in the family office manage the funds of your grand auntie, your, you know, your father, your mother and your cousins. So if you don't have a common alignment in relation to the end goal where the family is trying to get to, you're going to have problems because when the markets are working against you, you may have your grand auntie asking you, why did you make that call? You know, is is that truly reflective of our risk appetite? Did we say that those are the assets we want to get into and how much of those assets and then disputes will happen? So when you have a family office that's managing the funds of the village, it is important to get that alignment and alignment can't happen without first and foremost, the communication. So we need to understand the aspirations as well as the essential and aspirational goals of each individual family member, their concerns, their risk appetite, and then to have the family discuss this to understand where they're getting to, what what are our values in relation to how we invest, what is our position in relation to social impact and sustainability, what is our risk appetite and our appetite in relation to leverage, for example, what is our position in relation to asset allocation. So having that ability to discuss these things openly is important for them to understand where they're getting to so that there is alignment and manage expectations. The other thing is also your family office invests those funds for what? For people to use, right? So hmm. it is also important then, which is why governance is important because it's important for people to understand, number one, how do I define family? Who are family members? You know, in this day and age, the, the family matrix is more and more complex. So you have people in their second or third marriages. Some people don't even bother to get married. You know, same gender partnerships. So what is our family's position on these things? So it's a stepchild, a child family member, is an adopted child, a family member, is a child of a partner, a family member, is a child of a 
partner from the previous marriage, a family member. So when there is no common understanding, people will get upset, you know. So we need to sort of put fairness in context so that we have a common narrative in relation to who is a family member, what are their entitlements. So when I make a distribution, I'm distributing the right amount to the right people and everybody has managed expectations in relation to what they can expect from the family funds because as you cross into a third, fourth generation, you can imagine that the number of family members is exponential. So if I'm going to buy a house for everyone, how much returns do I need to generate in order for me to put fairness in context and provide that for everyone? So those discussions are not necessarily easy conversations. So they first and foremost need to have that readiness to have those difficult conversations and to negotiate and to align. And then they then need to work on the protocol to make decisions. How do we make decisions together? How do we fight better in a way which is respectful to one another? And because I shook hands on the way we make decisions. When those decisions are made not in my favor, it doesn't become an emotional event because mm. we agreed this is the way we make decisions. We agreed that when I have grievances, this is how I table it. I don't go and have corridor conversations and try to divide and conquer and you know cause these passive aggressive behaviors. We presented a board the way that we agreed how we raise our concerns. And then when decisions are made, I respect it. So I, I don't turn it into an ego event. Yeah. So I, I think those things are, are important from a governance front to support a family to avoid episodes yeah <laughs> well it reminds me of the tv series that just ended succession i oh yeah i was thinking <laughs> about the passive aggressive behavior and the rivalry of the siblings but i also <laughs> thought about a very good example of having a very good robust governance framework for example mm -hmm. the salzburger family behind the new york times even in bad times they were able to the constitution was said that they have to build the press so they actually have to sold off the building which is actually under their family and they have to get everyone in the family to agree and then obviously yes well they were lucky and they managed to recover and they bought back the building and bought back the shares whoever bought who bought it off from them and they with the new york times so that robust formal governance framework is very important yes. Um, maybe I just want to double click a little bit. Can you elaborate mm. a little bit on the significance of having this pretty robust formal governance framework when it comes to guiding fair and trusted decision making within the family office? Everything ultimately at the end of the day is about trust. Yes. When we have the family office that actually established, it's about the trust, whether it's between family members or maybe as you said, the definition of family actually can be much, much wider on that. Yes, so you raise very important points. The words that you use, trust and respect, right? Mm -hmm. So trust, how do you actually engineer trust? Communication is important because when you have a clear communication flow, I do not suspect there's something going on that I don't know about. So sometimes, for example, we you know I've come across clients and, and families where they have family businesses and their family offices. Some family members are working in the family office. Some family members are working in the family business, but there are many family members who are not involved in either. They either have their own careers or they're just simply family members and they don't work, right? So there are many different hats that different family members could play. So it is often, how do you say it, when you are not intentional about building a, a governance a framework, you forget to share information. 
So you might think that, oh, somebody's really busy. I don't want to trouble them. So it's not that you're keeping things from them. But when you're not intentional, you tend to not realize that, well, I know what's going on in the family office, but the larger family group who are not involved, they don't know what I'm investing in. They don't know what the markets are looking like. They don't know what kind of decisions I've made. And they will start to sort of cook things up in their head, right? So assumptions are usually much worse than the truth. So first and foremost, the communication flow must be good in order for trust to begin. So you you need to encourage families to have a proper protocol in relation to how you share the information to the rest of the family members. So a lot of times you hear people talk about family assemblies because it is an arena where you regularly uh, disseminate information to share with the larger family group, especially for those who are not involved in the family office or the family business to say, this is where we are. How are things going? These are some of the major projects we are going into. Do you have any concerns? So you give them a platform to raise their concerns and ask questions so that they understand. So when there is exchange of information and a very healthy information flow, you're already building that level of trust. People don't feel insecure. They don't feel left out. They don't feel like they've been sidelined. So from there, then the next thing on governance is I've mentioned about the decision-making process. Everyone needs to be involved so that their voices are heard, so that when you decide that this is the way we make decisions, everybody has been consulted. They had a chance to say their piece and you negotiate to say, okay, this is the way that we think work best. And let's revisit it every two years or so to see does that work? Are there any kings? Should we evolve it so that everybody feels included? So when they feel that we together decided that this is the way we make decisions, they will accept it because they feel that, well, we are respected in relation to our voice. Our voices are important and we were heard. And we decided that this is the way we go. Then mm. you need to have consistency. So if you say this is the way we make decisions, you can't one moment you say we make decisions at the board level and the next moment you find that one family member has this great investment idea instead of tabling to the board for a board decision when to talk to daddy and then daddy's ah, small amount of money it's okay la, i let you invest then you can't put fairness in context then because we all agree this is the way we make decisions then you need to be consistent to follow it and then when you then make that decision, you need to, again, recommunicate to share with people. I took up this investment idea. I didn't take up this investment idea. Why? Mm. So people understand your decision-making process. Then people will then feel, oh, he got that investment idea supported and I did not. Why? It's because he did his research. There was a, an interest in the family to go in this area. And so his project was more aligned with that, which is why it obtained the support of the family. But this, my idea is not a key priority of where the family grows is. Then people won't feel that, oh, it's because he's the favorite son. Therefore, his idea got accepted and not mine. So letting people understand the rationale of decisions is also important. So you can see the communication and the decision-making part plays together to, to anchor that, that trust within the family. And when they feel that I can respect the system, I can respect each other, naturally, the love will grow. And then they mm. will feel the emotional attachment to the family growing more and more over time. We delve a lot from the customer perspective. Then from your angle, when you help your clients to actually dealing with this kind of very difficult 
conversations. What are the sort of potential challenges that um that are associated in terms of helping them to implement this framework then? So challenges are many. When you're dealing with people, it's never mm. easy. First and foremost, when you look at the family, especially if the family is a bit larger, you have some family members who are interested to practice proper governance. Some are not so keen. So you end up not being able to bring everybody to the table or the process takes very, very long because you have to slowly, slowly enroll every single family member. Um, at times, you may have a very dominant voice. So while we all agree that we will do it in a certain way, each family member has expressed their point of views to us and we are presenting to them to say, okay, this is where you are aligned and this is where you differ. On the areas where you differ, let's pick some issues to start working through. And then you face challenges where the dominant voice is always very quick to dismiss the rest. So you have to find, how do you say, a gentle way to help them to move forward without letting other people get drowned out. And as you can imagine, you know, it, it can be fairly <laughs> challenging. <laughs> it's, a, it's about aligning everyone to go in the straight line, yes. right? <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to ask this question and I always ask it to different guests of mine. What is the one thing you know about the family office business in Asia that very few people do? Hmm. I think when we talk about very few people, I would imagine very few people that's not within the industry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times when people imagine a family office, maybe because the family offices, the more mature one in the US, in Europe, are more well known. So people imagine this group of gurus coming together and investing assets together, and then they are very well organized and very powerful. The reality for many family offices in Asia, they're very young. They're just put together in the last couple of years and they're still learning. So a lot of the family offices in, in Asia are very lean. Sometimes they have probably two or three family members trying to make things work together. They may have one external employee and who's trying to do it all for everybody. And, and we talked a lot about governance. A lot of them are only at the beginning stage of trying to figure things out and make things tick. So it's, it's not as organized, as powerful as everybody imagined, you know, those family offices to be work in progress. We're very yeah. much work in progress. Mm, I sense that there is a lot of work and a lot of opportunity there. So I yes. want to switch gears and talk about the trends in the space of family offices. One thing for sure, Asia is really growing in terms of the industrial family office landscape. What are the current trends that are shaping the family office landscape in Asia then? So when you look at the trends as driving the family office space, first and foremost is the great wealth transfer. We all know that trillions of assets will be transiting across generations in the next decade or so. So that driver itself resonates with many families. They are seeing the next generation coming upstream. Some of them may not be interested, as I mentioned, in the main family business. And sometimes they're already looking at liquidity event simply because the patriarch or matriarch feels that, you know, this industry we're in, it might be difficult for the next generation to, to continue the, the way we have actually been running this business. So maybe let's 
you know, have a liquidity event and let's redeploy. So the family office space then comes up because somebody needs to manage the assets. And first we look at the financial space and then we look at what direct investments we might get into and redefine what a family, our family office actually looks like. So that great wealth transfer drives a lot of their family office momentum. The other thing I feel is also the geopolitical tensions that we've been seeing in the past couple of years. And if you look around in in Asia, there are jurisdictions where people look at the Ukraine and the Russia issue, they're concerned that the world is not as stable and as safe as it used to be. So from that perspective, you also find that people feel the need to diversify on many fronts, including jurisdictions, which is why you start to see Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai, various places coming up as family office potential centers. So Clients are looking at deploying assets in different directions to explore opportunities in different directions and to diversify out their risk in terms of where their assets are, in terms of where their growth potential is in relation to businesses. So I think these two core trends have been sort of driving and shaping the the family office space. Mm. And how are factors like wealth transfer across generations, the generational divide, you alluded to earlier, and also the rise of, say, next-generation investors influencing the industry itself. Mm. So from the industry perspective, this whole next-gen nature has received a lot of attention because, as we all know, when the generation shifts, the chances of the family changing their bankers is very high. Um, Sometimes it's because I don't like the fuddy-duddy that was dealing with my family assets, my dad likes him, I don't. Sometimes it's simply because I just want to change for whatever reason. So staying relevant to the family becomes something that a lot of financial institutions are paying a very close attention to. Plus, if you look at, as we say, our mission statement is to support the entrepreneurs as their family generation to generation. So we pay a lot of attention to next generation training. So when the next generation is coming upstream, what can you do to support them in relation to training them? In Asia, many families educate their children really well. They send them to top-notch schools and they're very well educated. But when it comes to the ensuring that they have the right attributes to t- take on key positions, whether it is in their family offices, whether it is in their family businesses, it's due to some extent work in progress. So on that front, there's a lot of focus in relation to supporting families in the training of next generations to ensure that they have the right skill sets and attributes to support the families on the next level of growth. And you talked about the focus of next generation. So if you look at the investment philosophy of the next generation's family members, they are more values driven. So when you look at surveys that we've done on the focus and the interest of next gens, we find that the area of sustainability resonates very well with the next gens. And if you think about it, naturally so, because it is their world that that we are dealing with in order for them and their future generations to live out a good life. Sustainability becomes an important issue. So they are interested in these impact investing, sustainability. So that area becomes a core area to develop because the next gens uh, embrace that and they want to see that we're doing that area well. Mm. So I'm pretty curious as a technologist myself, 
how do you see the role of technology evolving in the operations of family offices? Are there any like specific technological advancements or tools that will have significant impact on how family offices would operate in the future? Good question. If you look at a family office, basically I'm looking at managing the various assets of the family. So for me, having the right technology to support me to consolidate my assets and then giving me a clear view of my returns and my risk is extremely important. So a lot of young, lean family offices that has two or three family members, can you imagine people do using Excel spreadsheet and trying to do consolidation of their own? It's just not an efficient use of manpower. So having the technology to be able to efficiently help them consolidate, pull the data from various bank accounts, include your non-financial assets, include the valuation of your passion investments, you know, your wines, your exotics, your diamonds, your art, your real estate, is important. And to allow you to have a clear view, where is my geographical risk? Where is my asset class risk? Am I over-concentrating across my various bank accounts and my different asset classes in relation to a particular geography, for example? So when you see geopolitical risk, where are my assets sitting? So having that, that technology to be able to help me to see a clear view, I think is extremely powerful for family offices. Mm. So I think I reckon that now with the ChatGPT or this artificial intelligence stuff, it will actually help to automate a lot more of things that the workflows that you have. I think in years to come, definitely these new technology will have a part to play. Mm. So I'm going to come to my traditional closing question. How do you actually envision the future of family offices in Asia? One thing that I really want to know is what are the key elements or characteristics that would define a thriving family office in the region over the next few decades? So for me, a great family office is one that's values-driven, mission-centric, and vision-led. So having those key elements to me are very important. And the kind of characteristics that we embody would be that they would have a, just now we talked about it, a robust governance framework so that they are aligned, they make good decisions together. They have their succession in place. They know in relation to their assets, what's going to happen and who's getting what. And not just that, who is coming upstream to take leadership positions within the family, within the family office, within the family business. So having all these attributes and criteria in place so that you know your transition is smooth is another key attribute. Being a force for good, building your social capital, playing your part for the community, using your private capital appropriately to support the sustainability of the world at large. I think there's another key attribute of a strong family office and professionalizing over time, growing from strength to strength, constantly looking at yourself to make sure that you are becoming a better version of yourself year on year. I think that would then be also another key characteristics of a great family office. Mm. So Liwa, many thanks for coming on the show. And I really learned a lot about thinking about the family offices industry and how to even set up a family office in Asia. So I have two closing questions. The first one, mm-hmm. any recommendations which have inspired your life? So for me, inspiration comes from life around. And this might sound a little silly, but you know, the two closest persons to me on a day-to-day basis is my son 
my 15-year-old, and my, my shizu, my puppy, who is about a year old. And why do I say that? My, my son, he's on the autism spectrum, high-functioning, but you know he has challenges nonetheless. And for me, I find that what is inspiring is that he does not allow his limitations to limit him. So as you can understand, a person on the spectrum is sometimes a little socially awkward. Mm. But when he sees a group of people that he wants to get to know, he just approaches them, he he tries to hang out with them, and you know, he he is just not affected by the fact that people might think that he behaves a little bit different from them. He still goes ahead and tries. I think that gumption to me is extremely inspiring. Many of us will, how do you say this? You know, think about our own limitations or impose limitations on ourselves and we don't dare. But he, in his own quiet way, thrives that every day. So I, I think to me that's extremely inspiring. Wow. For my dear little peanut, my <laughs> my my shizu. So he is an extremely extremely sociable dog. Every day when I take him out for a walk, he charges out through the door and he goes hunting for other dogs to make friends with. Unfortunately, in the estate, we have quite a number of older dogs who are not very um, sociable or they've become less sociable over time, you know, as they age. So he goes up to them, big dogs, small dogs, furry dogs, not so furry dogs, with a big smile and wagging his tail and digging, dangling out his tongue. And, and then he get growls at. He sometimes get people who tries to bite his head off or they snub him. But he doesn't allow anybody's reaction to affect his self-belief. The next morning, he will go out and approach the same angry dog and tries again. Every day, he will go with a big doggy smile and tries again. So for me, that resilience is actually absolutely amazing to see. So to mm. me, that's extremely inspiring. And if we take on those attitudes of being resilient and not allowing our limitations or what our, we perceive to be our limitations to get the better of us, I think we will do so well in life. <laughs> mm. Last but not least, how can my audience find you? I think they can find me easily on LinkedIn if you okay. sort of go search Lee Wong or on Lomba ODA's Asia LinkedIn page, should be able to find me. Okay, and I'll put a placeholder there. So, Lee Wong, many thanks for coming on the show and for all the audience out there, we can now have our own YouTube channel at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia, Twitter, and we can be found on every podcast platform. So, we need your support, your feedback. Lee Wong, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. 